our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. It was just mainly sort of mothers of children who experienced racism and everyone just piled into the meeting. I mean, absolutely. And it was just horrendous because I couldn't believe, even though I knew we were a bunch of racist lunatics, that you would just be so violent to such a a small group of helpless people. But unfortunately, that is what happened. 17 people were hospitalised. Someone jumped through the the window of the library. Every person there was beaten within an inch of their life. I mean, it was horrendous. No one got out. It's mid-July, the sun is shining somewhere in the world, and with this, the podcast's eighth episode, I wanted to take stock and thank you all for following and subscribing. I've been a little overawed by the thousands of listeners each week and want to thank you for all the messages. I will get back to everyone. It's just totally manic at the beginning of the week while I edit this damn thing. Please do keep subscribing and sharing. It helps more than you can know, but it's doing well and you've shown that people do really care about fascinating people and intriguing stories whether they be in the form of a Westboro Baptist Church defector, the world's first ever blogger who had a fight with writer Kurt Vonnegut, or a woman who grew up in the Hasidic Jewish community. If you've enjoyed getting a glimpse into their lives, you'll certainly like both next week's interview with an ex-Muslim who is being stalked by her family, they tried to fucking kill her, and today's episode with Matthew F. Collins, a former racist turned spy and author. In 1993, he raided a town meeting in the Welling Library with the British National Party, not known to be very nice people. He and his fellow fascists severely beat up the attendees, which he recalls being mostly composed of women. Some of the people at the meeting suffered life-changing injuries. During the ruckus, Matthew found himself changed by the senseless violence and became a mole for the Searchlight and Hope Not Hate anti-racist organizations. In 2018, it was in his role running the intelligence network and recruitment of far-right extremists for Hope Not Hate that he helped to prevent the assassination of British politician Rosie Cooper, an attempted murder that reminded the UK of Joe Cox, who was tragically killed two years earlier. Jack Renshaw, the baby-faced spokesman of terrorist group National Action, had bought a machete to carry out the murder and will serve at least 20 years in prison. He's also a convicted child sex offender, so he's got quite a CV. In any case, we can be thankful for Matthew's work handling Mole Robbie Mullins, who exposed Renshaw. I was interested in Matthew because he has some fascinating tales, but also because he encapsulates the human tendency to follow the stories we're told, as well as our capacity for change. For a more detailed look at his life, read his books, Hate, My Life in the British Far Right, and Nazi Terrorist. I found him in a no-nonsense mood that also reflects how we're all beginning to feel after months of lockdown. Yeah.
bad hair day. No, you look good. You got lovely hair. Mm. Well, you've got hair. Well, yeah, my missus did it. I was going to get to do hers, but she wasn't playing ball. Uh, anyway, God. what are we talking about today? The usual shit. What are we talking The usual shit, yeah. Do you do a lot of these interviews? Not really. Okay. I try, uh, I try, not, I try not to. Okay. Is, is it hard to go through everything again? Not really. I just can't be bothered. <laughs> well, I'm glad you could be bothered for me. Yeah. If you had like a one-liner, what would you say? What's your story? I am an anti-fascist. The beginning of this journey uh, began as a fascist, a racist and a fascist. I'm living my best life, as my grandmother would have said. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I think you've uh, seemed, from what I know, you have a lot to be proud of. Um, so you, what, could you tell me a little about your, your childhood and how you grew up and how you got into becoming a, a racist? Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in Lee, which is in Lewisham, southeast London. Um, youngest of four brothers. My parents are Irish, but, you know, a, a council estate. Yeah. And my father left the home when I was five. And my brothers and I grew up in our council home with, with our mother. We didn't have much. We were poor-ish, um, but we never went without. And I think I, I think I had a great deal of resentment about growing up without some things or access to some things. Um, but, but the more I look back on my childhood, I was uh, blessed with a lot of other things. We never went hungry. We, we, were, we had a very strict upbringing. Um, the house was always warm. There was always food on the table, always had clothes on our back. And um, the older you get, of course, you realize those are the most important things. Being young, as I was, I was uh, prone to bouts of anger. I think anger, disappointment, rage. And I've, 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 I viewed, I know that the, the, the common narrative is that everybody blames somebody else for uh, falling into extremism. Um, certainly, if you want to, you know, if, if you want to get paid by um, prevent, or you want to get onto some uh, gravy train, you have to uh, automatically blame other people. But I don't blame other people. I, I took an instant dislike to people of colour. And um, I followed through on that till when I was in the school, in the school library, what, what few books they had on the subject of the extreme far right, I purloined. So I had a really good collection of books on the, on the far right and I, I read them all. I made a conscious decision at about 13 or that I wanted to join the, the extreme far right. I wanted to join the National Front as it was then or the BNP as I discovered. And that's what I wanted to do. And I, I've never blamed anybody else. I think you might be being hard on yourself a little bit because... I think the the older I get as well, my views have changed a little bit. And I'm from a middle class background and I, I had everything, <clears throat> everything I wanted, everything was fine. So I used to judge uh, maybe a, a lot of the white working class. I used to always say, uh, you, you know, oh, yeah, a bunch of racists or whatever, without thinking about how it might be. I mean, we are our experiences. Yeah, well, that, that does sum up the middle class, doesn't it? You are the yeah. enemy of the working class. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we do, but we would, we would, you know, and that's how a lot of people talk. And it's a lot of the sort of the guys who are woke and privileged or whatever nowadays, they will talk about the white working class in those terms. 
And it's yeah. it's the older I got, I started to think, oh, but how would I feel? Because you you know you're you are changed by your experiences. How would I feel if I were struggling to put food on the table for my family? If that kind of thing, and then I then I might feel different about immigrants and things like that because it's very easy for me to sit here because I'm not the one who's going to be affected by them. I don't think I'm being hard on myself. I mean, I'm just being brutally honest. And of course, the older you get, and the more you the more you look back at things like your life or the history or the past of it, you see some things are rose tinted glasses, some things you, you you tend to want to sort of throw onto the rubbish. And that might even include yourself. But no, that, that's the way I saw it. There was there was a lot, even my own brothers didn't uh, exhibit as harsh a racism as I did. I think one or two of them probably have a, a little bit unreconstructed. But you know, certainly not to the not to the degree that I not to the degree that I did, or any of the people that I, I grew up with. And the, the strange thing is about about racism, or having such a commitment to racism as I did, is that uh, it's quite isolating. Even people even people who are racist don't like racists. Um, is that right? Yeah, that, well, that's where that's where that that's where that expression comes from. Um, I'm not a racist, but and then they say those people say something racist. If you you know, people will, will, if you're in a pub or if you're in one of those footballing environments, like we saw all those football ads out, they'd go along with all the racist things you'd ever say and all the stupid and ignorant things you'd say. But then if you declared yourself a racist, they go, well, I don't really like racism. You'd be surprised how many people um, believe they're not racist or, or, or deny being racist. But, but, but I'm not a racist, but and all that. Yeah. So it, it it was quite isolating. I remember, and I remember going to football, you know, shouting out uh, racist comments and abusing black footballers and things like that. Yeah. And no one, no one ever uh, pulled me up on it, and people joined in or laughed. And then going back a year or two later, selling National Front newspapers outside of football ground got a horrific response from people you know i know the idea is you go to football and everyone's a nazi and a racist but i can't remember what year it was 1989 at, mm. at crystal palace i think it was we did we did, uh, we did one at charlton as well okay. and people were people were really really aggressively anti-national front even yes, though yeah. they were even though they weren't woke man they didn't do woke in croydon anyway so i don't smoke me because my missus is out of the house. I was in hospital recently and they said, do you smoke? I said, no, I just smoke a crack pipe. And for about two hours, they treated me like I was a crack addict. And um, I then had to explain, no, my vapor thing is actually my crack pipe. And they were like, yeah. why would you tell us you smoke crack? I don't know what I was about to get, some kind of electric shock treatment. Oh, my God. So They've done a lobotomy on you. Well, yeah, you, well, they actually were at my bottom at the times, but we won't go into that. Jesus. So... What happened then? Did you start to get sort of taken in by people around you into these sort of racist groups? Well, I fell into what you would call joint enterprise football hooliganism, which meant that I, I never really, I wasn't really a proper football hooligan, but I sort of fell in with that fellow traveling. Two things happened in very short or quick succession. The BNP came and leafleted our house, our, our little council estate. And then a couple of weeks late, so I was very, very excited by that. I, they put their newspaper through the door and I hid it under the bed and read it cover to cover like 30 or 40 times. It all seemed perfectly uh, normal and reasonable, my first lesson in propaganda, I guess. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, I was outside Upton Park yeah. and yeah. ran into the National Front. And it was like, 
I don't know in my book, I don't know if I described it like bumping into the Spice Girls or something. I don't know. can't remember. But it was like a, a, a magic moment because during the 1980s, the National Front were dead. No one had heard of them. And people, people you'd ask about the National Front, you know, they'd lost their offices and all this kind of stuff. People would uh, sort of say, oh, they've, they've gone underground. But actually they hadn't. They just collapsed. And a bunch of really oddball individuals were sort of keeping the organization going. So when I met them, I thought they were spectacularly brilliant. And I you know, sort of joined up on the spot. I didn't even go into the game. Spent my time talking to them. Uh, went to the pub for a pint. I think I made the, I think I made the second half. It was pre-season friendly. And that, and that, was, and that was basically it for me. And I, I was 15 at the time. Mm. And um, I, had, I had it all planned out within an hour that I was going to totally and utterly commit myself to these people and their weird ideas and uh, strange dress sense. I just felt I'd finally, you know, I'd finally found them. Yeah. I'd finally found them. I'd gone through all these books talking about Nazis. And um, I remember uh, Martin Walker's book on the National Front. I stole that from the library, of course. Mm-hmm. Every name that was mentioned, I went through the phone book trying to find people who were in these, this book and ring them up. It's nice when you're young and you've got uh, hopes, dreams and aspirations. But my mum was impressed that I was using the phone book. She wasn't that impressed by that. She wasn't impressed by the phone bill. No, I can imagine. Was she impressed by your right-wing leanings? No, she fucking hated it. We grew up in our house with the Daily Mail, as read by intelligent women. So um, we were often cautious that most things that we did or ate could kill us because that's the that's the, the standard Daily Mail article. Yeah. Breathing can kill you. Yeah. Um, and my mum saw Margaret Thatcher as someone that could actually um, elevate us out of our council estate life. And eventually my mum bought her council house and, and moved away, that kind of thing. But my mum didn't like foul language, which is yeah. extraordinary because she had four sons. Didn't like foul language and also um, didn't particularly like racism. N- uh, not for like political purposes or anything like that. She, she, my mum doesn't like bad language. My mum doesn't like hatred. So when people would express racist comments or racist sentiments or racial hatred. She, she just didn't like it. She didn't like, but she didn't like extremists. So when I got involved with them, she couldn't understand why, why I would do that. She wanted nothing to do with it. She wouldn't have their things in the house. She wouldn't allow them to visit the house or come to the house. And I remember as my time in the National Front sort of took off and it began to dominate my life to the point where I quit work. You know, then, you know, starting coming home with black eyes or cut faces and things, you know, your clothes covered in in blood. But she never, it's quite funny, she never told me or asked me to stop, which I I, I sort of respect that. But she spent her entire time ripping them to pieces. Would that have changed anything? No, of course not. My mum knows that. She's a smart group. Is it a little bit like... um, a teenager who gets into punk music or something did you think you were one of the good people i I guess so and i guess my mum sort of thought he might grow out of it despite the fact when i would go out of the house with my my nazi friends doing not horrible nazi things when i was back at home i was still the youngest boy i was still physically the weakest um not the most intelligent in the house either and so no matter what I was out doing or saying, uh, back home, I was still the runt of the litter and then treated as much. And everything I did and said was open to uh, scrutiny and, and, and 
extreme piss take. So, so what, what was the allure of these uh, National Front people then? Was it, did it make you feel stronger, I suppose? Uh, stronger, I, I think also more dangerous. I, I, I wanted to feel dangerous. I mean, there's nothing like, you know, when you want to elevate yourself. I, want, I wanted to feel dangerous. I wanted people to fear me. And the sort of people I, I was hanging around with were dangerous. They, they, were, they were fearsome people. And it's like a, a bit of a feather in your cap, isn't it? Um, look at me. I've got all these really fucking dangerous... Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, I don't care. Yeah, go for it. Because, I, I, listen, I've got a whole vocabulary of swear words. Yeah. Um, look <laughs> at me. I've got all these really, really dangerous friends, these people. And I know people who can um, really do some damage and are capable of doing some... And, and willing and able to do... To do damage, and I saw that as a feather. I saw that as a, a feather in my cap. Most people go and get photographed with pop stars or actors. I, I got photographed with a bunch of violent neo Nazis. But did it feel like uh, a gangster movie or something to you? Uh, there was, yeah. There were there were times and there were there were times and there were elements of it. There was an aura, or we went in a pub or wherever we went. There was an aura. People could tell here comes trouble, and almost everywhere we went. There was violence. Yeah, it was a pretty disappointing day out if you didn't end up in a punch-up. What was happening? You were going like, okay, this weekend we're going to go and fight these people. The normal targets were, weren't they? The left um, people that sold left-wing newspapers, I, the Irish, the Irish nationalists or Irish Republicans or people that would campaign for the withdrawal of British troops from Ireland, for instance. That would be generally, yeah, you, you know, we would look to hold our paper sales in, pro- in proximity to people who were politically opposed to us. And it would be a test, you know, could we could we sell here and get away with it? You know, and we were always, I mean, th- this is, what makes people, I think people the most dangerous is people that don't have fear. And there were people in the, in the National Front back then who weren't scared of anyone. You know, and, and those are, those are frightening and worrying, frightening and worrying people. And so we would go, and we would travel all over, all over the country, really, um, to plan to demonstrations. And the idea was, you would go somewhere where you would provoke trouble. You would go somewhere where you would provoke a violent response. Now, either a violent response from anti-fascists and the left, or a vi- even even better if you could provoke a violent response from a black or Asian community. Now I remember Rochdale. Uh, the BNP went to Dewsbury and had a riot. Um, there was a number of marches, troops out marches. We would always target them either for our demonstrations or to counter demonstrate. Counter demonstrate. They were actually exciting times. They were actually, I think, really political times. I think. Mm. What, what um, about the what, Jews? Well, I mean, there was one specific time the BNP went down to Portsmouth, and I didn't go. And the BNP said, we're going to Portsmouth to wind up the Jews. And I didn't realise there was specifics to that because, you know, the Jews existed everywhere. You, and you couldn't even look in your cupboard without one hiding in. And then that weekend, Jewish graves were vandalised. Hmm. But generally, because they have such a warped view of the world, Jews are everywhere anyway. So even those who aren't Jews are Jews or in oh. the employment of Jews or the tools of Jews. So they... We, and I'm just going saying they, we believed that um, the IRA were financed by Jews. We believed that the Socialist Workers' Party and the Communist Party were full of Jews. 
And anyway, because we were at war with this society that had a, a, a government that was occupied by Zionists, of the Zionist occupied government, that you were striking against Jews anyway. If you were doing anti-immigration activities, you were striking back against yeah. the Jews. The, the targeted hatred of Jews came a lot later when C18 said, well, we, no, we can actually take it right to the Jews. You know, the expression, take it to the Jews. And then C18 were like, no, we'll take it right to the Jews. There was certainly a lot of grave desecrations that went on. I, rem I remember the, there was a, a Jewish cemetery in East Ham. Yeah. And one of the guys who worked as a caretaker there or security guard was in the BNP. Um, but no, there was, you know, anti-Semitism was rife, but you could target Jews either through the stupidity of our brains that the Jews were everywhere, controlled everything, or like the BNP did attacking the Jews um, by putting out material about the Holocaust, like the Holocaust denial material. Oh. I remember Holo I remember Holocaust News was another newspaper. I think the BNP put out 100,000 copies across London. That's wow. extraordinary, a number of these newspapers. Um, and that was, of course, targeting Jews, getting other, you know, it's always about getting other people to do your thinking and, and your hatreds for you. We didn't, no, we didn't specifically target Jews because we thought we were all, yeah, because we were always at war with Jews. What happened as you got uh, a little older um, leading up to, I know there was a big moment in 1993 where uh, things kicked off for you. Welling Library, um, but around that time, the BNP were gaining ground on the NF and, and taking over the NF, really, in terms of street activity and uh, thirst for violence. They were far more violent than the National Front were. And so a lot, a lot of people were drifting between the two organizations. And the BNP opened a bookshop in Welling, which was, of course, a headquarters. And from there, things really, really began to take off for the BNP. And that's when I first saw us as a movement or racism and proper Nazism. I mean, the National Front were fascists bordering on Nazi, but the BNP were out-and-out out Nazis, and that was as simple as that. And I really saw, I began to see what it was like when you're off the leash, when you own your own buildings and you're producing your own materials constantly. The National Front and Nazism and, and, and all that had been a weekend and evening sort of activity. When the BNP opened that bookshop, it became something that was there and available 24 hours a day. Yeah, the bookshop never closed. Richard Evans would get out of bed at any time of the day, you know, if you needed somewhere to hide or you needed, just needed a cup of tea, really. And I began to see what it was like when they were really, really unleashed. And so did the community who lived there. I mean, Welling Borders, Plumstead, Woolwich, uh, Elton. And summer of 1989, I think there was a tube strike. Um, and so lo uh, concerned local residents had a, a meeting above Welling Library yeah. to discuss the dangers of having the BNP with a bookshop in, in that community. And I got the I got a phone call in late afternoon. You need to bring a team over to Welling. There's a there's a red meeting. There's no tubes running. The tubes didn't go to Welling. But what was fortunate was that it meant a lot of uh, people who would have provided security on the on the meeting couldn't get across London to do it. There's something about living in South London that people don't even know it exists, particularly South East London. And the BNP had a like a removal truck, a really big truck coming up from Essex with people in it. 
and it was making pickups along the way. And so me and some colleagues <clears throat> from the National Front made our way over to, uh, over to Welling by bus. And we, about 40 of us met in the uh, BNP bookshop. And just the instructions were given, we're gonna go to the meeting and we're gonna smash this meeting up. We're gonna smash these, smash these reds, destroy them. And although, although, I, although I knew that you know, some of the people in that meeting were horrific racists and they was all really, really violent, I somehow thought it was gonna be like a, an equal and fair fight. But when we got to Welling Library, the the meeting was mainly aged, or certainly older than me, uh, almost completely female Asian audience. Um, so I didn't think we was going to physically assault them. I thought we would have intimidated them, you know, and punished them for coming into our territory. But what what happened almost immediately? The caretaker came to the door and said uh, oh sorry you can't come in it, there's a private meeting upstairs he could see there was a huge you know very huge number of people trying to get in and uh, he was told no it's a public meeting and we're coming in and they trampled his body you know they pushed him to the ground and they stamped on him and they kicked his head in and then another guy who was a councillor a labour councillor came running down the stairs at us and then stopped in shock when he saw what was coming up the stairs uh, he was, uh, Jeff Dixon was his name, uh, he was violently assaulted. And then we got up these stairs and we, we went into the where this meeting was being held. And that's when we sort of drew, a, or I drew a, a gasp of breath. Oh, there's no Reds in here. It's just little old Asian women. What are Reds? Is that communists? Reds is basically anyone who's not a fascist. So I know traditionally the Reds under the bed is about communists, but basically, you know, Tony Blair was seen as a hardline Marxist. Anyone who, who wasn't with us is considered a, or wasn't with us, it was considered a Red. And of course, there were very, very committed Reds, like groups like Red Action and, and Anti-Fascist Action. But, so there weren't really Reds in that room. It was just main, mainly sort of mothers of children who'd experienced racism in, in, in the community. We were concerned about the high level and high number of uh, racist incidents. And I thought almost immediately, well, that will dominate this meeting and we'll, we'll, we'll basically overpower the meeting by our sheer weight of numbers. But that didn't happen. What, what happened was someone stood up, uh, I believe it was Dev Barra, who's, a, who's a, an Indian man from, um, well, Kenyan Indian from Greenwich, Dev. He stood up to confront uh, these blokes and everyone just piled into the meeting i mean absolutely every and it was just horrendous because i couldn't believe even though i knew we were a bunch of racist lunatics that you would just be so violent to such a such a, a small group of help of helpless people but unfortunately that is what happened and 17 people were hospitalized someone jumped through the the window of the library every person there was beaten within an inch of their life. I mean, it was horrendous. No one got out without being a victim of violence. I believe the caretaker never worked again. Um, so they, and, and, and I watched all this unfold and, and happen. And to the point where I just stood there in the middle of the room while all this violence was happening. And I thought, I think now it's all gone a little bit too far. I think, um, 
you know, when we're starting to do this, maybe we are as bad as people say. I always saw the violence prior to that as somehow necessary because we were a small political movement. And what would happen is, um, you know, eventually we would morph into a, a proper political party. And it was on that, you know, it was on, it was in Welling Library, I realised, of course, of course not. You know, violence will always be the answer. Violence will always mm. be the currency that we know and understand. And I found that quite scary. Um, that night, I began to doubt the sincerity of the politics, that we were simply organisations that wanted to repatriate humanely, always, always say this, humanely, repatriate people back to their land of ethnic origin. Started asking all the questions that I, I actually really knew the answer to. What happens if people don't want to go back to Africa? Because actually, as, as well, everyone's going back to Africa. It, it didn't matter where they were from. If they were from Plumstead, Portsmouth or Preston, uh, yeah, they're going back to Africa. If their ethnic origin was Pakistan or Sri Lanka or Vietnam, they're going back to Africa. Yeah. And so I just began to ask questions. Well, what, hap you know, what happens then if, if we're going to be a civilizing force in this country yeah. against all this supposed savagery of non-whites? Um, what happens if someone says I was born here and doesn't want to go? Well, they, they're made to go. They either, they either go willingly or they go um, facing the barrel of a gun. Seeing how indiscriminate it is up close and personal was a real jolt to me and from that moment I fell out of love with the movement. I think they were saying they remember you being among the loudest and sort of most raucous in the in the library. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. There was a lot of noise. I, um... A few decades ago private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. 
On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I do remember when um, the the doors to the library were kicked open. Uh. Richard Edmonds bellowed, British National Party! And then everyone just started screaming and, and shouting. But yeah, I guess I would have been. I had a very loud voice. Did you throw any punches? Yes, of course I did. Yes, of course I did. I don't, I ne- I've never denied that. But I did, I did actually, I was one of the few to actually land a punch on a male. Not that that's particularly. There were there wasn't enough people in the library for everyone to have a go at them. You know, I mean, that's how I, I can't even I can't even begin to describe how how fucking brutal it was. But did you hit any of the women? No, no, not 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 uh, thinking back about nineteen year old me or seventeen year old where I was nineteen eighty nine. Um, not because. Um, I had at the time objections to it because if you're told to do it in that, then you, then you, you get in and do it. But there's just the opportunity for me didn't arise. I, I was fighting with someone at the door who was a, a bloke. Hmm. And of course there's like 39 other people behind me. What does so, it feel like to land a punch on someone's face? Cause it's something I've never known and probably will never know. What is, what's the feeling? Really? Yeah. <laughs> no, I've never you done play, you're middle class. You must have played rugby at school, surely, or cricket. Yeah, well, that was more. So you'd get sort of punched in the stomach. I did play rugby. Uh, you get your balls grabbed. Uh, oh, that's nice. I should have given that a go. I got punched in the face a couple of times. But you never actually punched anyone. No, it te- for some reason it takes more courage. I think when you've never done it, to it takes more courage to throw a punch than it does to receive one. Absolutely. Well, well, it's not something. It's not something you should put on your bucket list. It's not. Uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna punch someone, um, make sure they deserve it. And also, the other thing is always expect always expect to get one back. Otherwise, you're just a fucking coward. Um, what does it feel like to punch someone in the face? I don't. I haven't done it for a very long time. My kids had armed police at the school picking them up last year. I don't think the people at school want to hear about this. Jesus. So, so yeah. that that would lead us into the next stage of your life, then. The, yes. You know, so, so what? Yeah, what came next? And the next day, I went back to the BNP bookshop, and they were raving about it, just raving about it. Man, we smashed them. We absolutely fucking. Up. Two of our lads have been arrested. Let's all have a whip round so we can put money in for the, mm. these two guys. Later in the week, the local paper came out, and they cut it out and put it on the wall as a great victory. 
I just began to think, yep, they really are fucking dangerous. And they're a danger. They're a danger to themselves and they're a danger to me. They're a danger to everyone. And I began to think how I could extricate myself from them. And it wasn't, you know, I didn't become like a, an anti-racist. I didn't, I didn't begin doubting uh, that immigration was wrong or that I began to doubt the quality of the people that were espousing these things, the people who have been my heroes and my my comrades and stuff like that. I realised in that environment that when people were just sort of saying, he needs to be shot, he needs to be killed, he needs to be murdered, she needs to be strung up, that actually the reality is, yes, these people would actually do these things. They really, really would do these things. What underpins racism is violence. It underpins everything. It's fear. But it's also violence, how, you know, like an animal, like an animal responds to its fears is by, by growling and then attacking something it's scared of or it's worried of. And that I was just surrounded by people like this. And you see it in all organisations. Yeah. I'd always seen that somehow I held a moral high ground. Yeah. And I, I lost that when, you know, we were stamping on people's bodies in a library in, in Wellington. This is a really interesting point, though, because even even you're saying that in that time you felt like you held the moral high ground. Absolutely. I mean, I see all over Twitter, Instagram, everywhere, friends of mine who put things like, you know, anti-racism. You ha- everyone has to be an anti-racist. I, I am an anti-racist. And it's, I think, like you said before, I think very few people consider themselves to be racist, even quite strong racists. Uh, and it feels like it's it's not enough to say, I don't want to be a racist, because everybody has a different definition of what racism is. Yeah, well, it's like, it's like um, Stephen Lennon, Tommy Robinson, has continually said throughout his career that he's not racist. Yeah. Look at me, I've got black mates. He certainly, I don't think, you know, as bad as I was, because he's, he's also been a lot more careful about the way he talks about people. But he's not an anti-racist. You know, it's not enough to say, I'm not racist. You have to be against racism. To, to eradicate racism, yeah. you have yeah. to challenge it. I saw this absolute clown, one of my colleagues is reporting on, standing in Leeds the other day with his National Front flag saying, we're not racist. This is a party that believes in eugenics. This is a party that believes in the superiority of one race over another. This is a party that denies the Holocaust happened. You're not racist? What, are you just guilty by association? So we have to, you know, we have to be anti-fascist. We have to be anti-racist. We don't have to be woke. We don't have to be... Um, what? <laughs> what? We don't have to be vegetarians. We don't, you yeah. know, we don't have to uh, modify our diets. We just have to treat people with decency and respect, and try and try and understand people. Listen, I'm not going to become a vegan. No, no, nobody's asking you to. Quite right. Yeah, uh, I am a vegetarian, you know, but I can't, I can't forgo cheese. That's because you're middle class. Yeah, and I love a bit of cheese. I, I made a reputation for myself, actually, Billy, Billy Bragg. Wherever he plays on his rider, most pop stars get drugs and alcohol. I think he gets a bottle of wine and he gets some very, very nice cheese. That's what it's that's what it's all about, isn't it? Well last time um, I went to one of his last time I went to one of his gigs, I stole all the cheese. <laughs> he forgave he? me. Yeah. Yeah. How do you know Billy Bragg? Oh, uh, long story. He wrote the foreword to my book. Did he write the foreword to my book? Yeah, he wrote the foreword to my book. I met Billy I met Billy Bragg. We were filming uh, Dead Man Walking. Right. In 2000, 2003, he had been targeted by Combat 18 and people on his website, his, he had, he had a, back in those days, he had a web forum and he'd done a lot of, he'd done a lot of work, a lot of anti-racist and anti-fascist work. And um, C18 went onto his web forum. 
back in those days, it was very, very easy to identify and find someone. And they began targeting his supporters. That's how I ended up nicking Billy Bragg's cheese. Wow. And how did you end up, uh, on another note, uh, it, with Searchlight and Hope, Hope Not Hate? Eventually, these, these doubts about my colleague and doubts about my life increased. Back then, Searchlight was the sort of go-to the go-to people they had a, a monthly magazine like the far right now are terrified that someone's passing information to hope not hate back then it was searchlight and uh I, I began passing i began passing information to them and i did that for three years i think i passed information to search how did it feel hanging out with your mates and you're sort of waiting for them to say you know we're going to go and beat someone up or whatever and then you were going to go and dob them in i guess well the the, the key is now i mean I, I tell people now who work for us who do this, you don't wait till after. You you go out of your way to stop these things from happening. You don't, you know, you're no good coming to us after there's been a, a vicious assault uh, and telling us who did it. You, you you know, part of your role is to stop that from happening. Be the voice of doubt. Well, let's not do that. If you have to take, if you have to stand around from at the pub instead, do that. We don't want we don't want people taking part in violence and coming back and telling us all about it. Part of the role of people that we have in the far right is to stop the violence. Right, but surely after three years and every meeting, you're going, "Now, nah, guys, let's not do that." There must have been some suspicion. Well, there, was, there was a lot of people who were saying that, so I obviously wasn't the only one. But no, the role of a mole is, of course, to help disrupt. So what would begin to happen was the planned or, or the activities. So we're going to turn up in Lewisham Shopping Centre on Saturday afternoon, because uh, you always arrive unannounced, was to make sure that there was enough anti-fascists in Lewisham who could, first of all, stop the spread of hatred, but also to protect people there who might be, who might be victims of, of racism or violence. And that's the role, that's the role of, of, of a mole, as well as identifying, of course, people who are engaged in, in violence. Um, is, is also preventative so but of course yes there were there were further times when um there were you know there was times when when there, of course there was violence hmm. that was just the you know that again that was the nature of it you couldn't stop it tw- you couldn't stop it every time but more often than not again was you know trying to convince them let's not go involved in a punch-up today let's go and deliver leaflets and yeah. make the revolution yeah. happen so i can't go into all of the ins ins and outs obviously of every detail of the apparatus that, that, that is used but yeah there's a great deal that is done efforts that we put in to to make sure the the idea of um diverting people away from violence happens and it happens mm. forcefully and you as a mole when there is violence going on uh, do you stand to the side or do the people go like, oh, why isn't he getting involved? In, in that period, a great deal of the violence, although the National Front and the BNP went looking for it, um, they were also themselves quite often the victim of violence because they were very, very organised uh, anti-fascists like the away, the away team who were based in London, Red Action, Hanafa who were based in Manchester, London, Glasgow. So quite often you you would find yourself the you know, the victim of some quite extreme violence as well. I remember the there was Kensington Library where of course the League of St George met in 1991. I was I went to that meeting as a mole to pass information on what people said and what people were talking about. That meeting was attacked 
by anti-fascist action or red action, the Reds. Um, it was a bloody, you know, a, a really bloody assault on the uh, the fascists inside the meeting hall. Luckily, I'd snuck out for a pint. I didn't. I didn't actually know there was to be an assault plan. But if I'd have been in the, the meeting, I, I would have been assaulted the same as everybody else. I asked you before about if whether it felt like you were in a gangster movie in the early yes. days. Did it feel like you were in a spy movie now? Yes. Yeah, I, th- I, I think then, and I think, and I think now, yeah, particularly, um, yeah. I mean, some, you know, it all has its place in history. I mean, some of it, yeah, is is learned, I guess, from from spy tactics about where to drop things off, which signs to give. Always, always believe you are being watched because often you are more than you realise. At twelve o'clock, if you're in such a place, can you? raise your right hand if there's this or your left hand if that clandestine meetings in the middle of the night um handing on handing envelopes in pubs to people all, all that happened then and all that happens now and i guess it will always will always continue to happen there's far more technology available now in you know in, in running spies inside organizations there's also more ways to get caught doing it so mm. you know i got i can't go into too many details but yeah we've done some we, we, we've done some pretty sexy things can you tell me anything well yeah we stopped an mp getting murdered didn't we yeah yeah that's right i was gonna get on that was to that. sexy yeah how did that happen after joe cox was murdered national action celebrated her murder and repeated the slogans of tommy mayor her murderer um and at the time, I guess I was the lead person re- researching them. And then they were banned in December 2016. And I knew for a fact they hadn't, they hadn't stopped. They, they, they hadn't stopped recruiting. But they'd obliged by a lot of things. They'd handed in their flags or they'd dumped their flags and stickers. They'd lost their PayPal account. Um, their website was closed and, and all that. Yeah. So they, they basically dropped their materials. It wasn't quite like the, um, you know, the disarming of Northern Irish terror groups, but there was all these things, you know, drop your website, don't put your stickers out, stop recruiting, all that happened. But I just knew the nature of these people. So I spent so much time studying them, everything they said and did, um, that that just wasn't going to happen. And it was just a yeah. question of biding time. And you know, we had people who were often in the same orbit as national action members that didn't really have anyone who was really really in national action until robbie mullen um made contact with us and then everything fell into place absolutely everything and uh, it was proved that um yeah they were still going they were still recruiting not only were they still going and recruiting they'd opened a bloody office and a gym uh, in warrington which is just between manchester and liverpool yeah and for me that was like a magnificent result because we knew that was we knew they were breaking the law by doing that we knew they could face up to i think it was eight years in prison at the time and and so we had to cajole robbie a little bit because his whole thing was similar to me i guess more than 20 years before he'd joined something and he'd believed in it and it had given him openings and opportunities social and otherwise probably not economic but social and otherwise it had opened the bubble to him he had concerns about immigration he had, he had concerns about uh, 
grooming gangs and things like that. And he'd he'd gone along to National Front events and hadn't really taken to them. And then he got he'd got involved in in National Action, and then the same as I had, he had a moment where he just realised that the only way these things can ever end is imprisonment and murder. They'd initially been this sort of whites-only group that was exciting, like a nasty Boy Scouts, and they liked upsetting Daily Mail readers by doing Nazi salutes, to suddenly he realised one day, oh, actually, I am in a terrorist group, and actually the people I'm surrounded by actually are wanting to kill, maim, and murder. And we wanted Robbie to stay in national action for a lot longer than he did, but unfortunately, um, some sometime after he came to us, and we you know, we began this really painful process of mapping the group and how it was still active. Um, Jack Renshaw went to went to them with his his plot um, to murder his local MP, and so unfortunately, rather than you know this glorious kind of thing we could have had, where we did a lot of serious exclusives, but no one got hurt. What happened was that we had to make the decision to, um, you know, re- report this murder plot. She was days. She, Rosie Cooper was days away from getting murdered by Jack Renshaw. Think of that. Yeah, I try not to anymore. It's been a bit. It's been very, very stressful on on everyone. Who well, not as stressful as it has been for Jack Renshaw, who's doing twenty years. But I think for everyone that was was involved in it, the, the idea. Our idea was obviously to stop Renshaw murdering Rosie Cooper and the uh, the woman police officer, yeah. who he also wanted to murder, who was investigating him for child grooming because he, you know, he was a paedophile. Ah. Um, sorry? Oh, I said, ah. Ah, yes. Aren't mm. they always? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's no doubt that, you know, because of what Robbie did, Robbie's bravery, and making the right decisions that he did. Yeah, there's 15 people currently serving prison sentences because, yeah, because of what, what Robbie did. He's an extraordinary young man. That's pretty cool, though, as well, for him and for you. Did, what, what, did, you, did you ever speak to Rosie Cooper? No, never. She must have had the fright of her life. I don't think Robbie's ever spoken to her either. You can understand. like she, You just wouldn't want to no, scare yeah, her. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. She, she, I think she had some security... Put, her, uh, put on and around her and then Robbie and I moved around the country or in and out of the country for a long time hidden addresses and both of us had great amounts of stress put on our personal lives and things like that and so when the when the final court case was done when the final court case Robbie gave evidence at the old Bailey um, he he went he's gone off now to um get on with a life, you know, get on with doing the things that he should have been doing, you know, for a guy in his 20s. Nowadays, what are you doing? What's your daily life? Where are you working? I work for Hope Not Hate now. I run the intelligence network, which means I'm responsible for the recruitment and conversion of far-right extremists. Some people will never want to come out of the far-right. Rather like I felt as a teenager, you can't, even if you change your mind and have a change of heart, you can't ever get out of this because I'm, I'm stuck with it. Yeah. And even though you hate their politics and you hate the politics, these people are still my friends. You'd be surprised when people are, are, are stuck with that. And other people you recruit who, who you, you know want to come out and you bring them out quietly and they just disappear. 
Are you still a target for people? Yeah, we don't talk about it here. Hmm. Yes, very much. Yeah, but I don't. I don't talk about it. The, the the good thing is, look, when it, when when it came out that I'd left, you know, that why I'd left England was because yes, I had been uh, working for the opposition. Then I came back to England and I had all those old enemies to worry about. But since two thousand and three, I've been making new enemies. Yeah. So, you know. And not and not just here, not just in the UK, across the world, I have people who hate me. It's a and not just the ex-wife. Across the world, I've made I've made enemies. But um, I think it's um, you know if you're judged by the people that hate you, I think I've done a good job. I think Matthew's done a good job too. And once again, you can read about his experiences in more detail through his books, Hate, My Life in the British Far Right, and Nazi Terrorist. There will, of course, always be critics who say he shouldn't be profiting in book sales from the terrible things he did, but helping to save a life and continuing to put his own life in danger to infiltrate these extreme groups? Well, if that's not redemption, I don't know what is. Join me next week when I'll be speaking with Ray, who is an ex-Muslim currently being stalked by her family, who have threatened to murder her. It's a meaningful one for me because Ray and I have become quite the online pen pals over the years, and trigger warning things get emotional and nuanced to an extent that parts of it might fail the woke test. But do listen if you're brave enough and make sure to subscribe and share as that's the way this thing grows and I can keep bringing you fascinating stories from around the world. Until next time. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>